everyone <clears throat> thank you for coming we will start in around eight minutes on top of the hour uh thank you for joining and um hi <laughs> srikant am i saying the name right i hope i am how are you today thanks for coming um if you like to share the room feel free to do it that's what i'm doing in the meantime and this is the in the meantime also if you would like to check out the lab website um from dr kula lama uh you can you can check on research what he's doing in general um so yeah Oh, I'm sorry that you don't know English. Do you have a translation app maybe that um, that can translate the content? I hope you do.
Hey Manas, hey Kelly, hey Shriyasta. Um, we will start in around four minutes. Um, welcome and um, oh yeah, I'm bringing you up. Feel free to. How are you today? Welcome. Good, good, Katerina. How are you? It's a very nice topic. <laughs> I just, uh, I just uh, did my. I think I finished my understanding dementia course in May. So I'm so happy you brought uh, such a nice topic. <laughs> oh yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, this topic is very important to me because with the mental health crisis around the world just getting worse, um, I think it's really important and. Um, yeah, I'm really curious what. Yeah. Exactly, I like I said, Katrina. I'm also like starting my uh, startup based on this, and I'm looking into really aging care and teaming up with a lot of people in the U.S. at the moment, and even Europe because the aging population, even in India, like people are honestly not aware, and the population of India, like when I run rooms on mental health they really don't understand like you know they really really the society it just brushes it off they don't understand that the crisis is at a clinical level and we don't have enough doctors given the population and there is not enough uh, you know a trained professional uh, care workers uh, for this aging population in general so that's a, you are like doing a very great thing by hosting this room so yeah <laughs> nice to see everyone else also in the room and in the panel hi there can you hear me yes we can hear you hi welcome hi, hi thank you, you for setting this up yeah thank you so much we'll start in two minutes and in the meantime we um we were talking how important this topic is. Um, so yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I've asked some of my lab members to join as well. I think unfortunately this time is uh, a bit tricky because some of them I think are just starting the semester. So <laughs> I hope they'll join. If not, I'll take it over. Oh, I'm sorry. We could have um, made it at a different time um maybe no maybe next time you know maybe yes in a few months or so you you have time to come back and then we do it at a time where, where it's better for your students maybe in the middle of the semester at a different time of the day yeah that yeah. sounds good but i can i can try my best yeah and tell your students this is recorded so if they listen to this on clubhouse um like if they just make an account um you know what is really um good about it is that the links we share here in the chat and um also on top they are still available so um whenever we mention something that we are sharing this link for further reading or something all of this is still active in the recording so that's why we really like the clubhouse recording version great that sounds good yeah um i think we can we can slowly start and uh welcome victoria welcome joyce 
and um, welcome everyone. Good morning. Thank you. So nice to see everybody. Yeah. Hi. I look forward to meeting you and hearing more. Okay, great. I'm so happy the team is together. <laughs> With these giant mics. Do you notice the giant mics on screen? Right. But I heard it's a bug, so they yeah, will go back to, to normal. Uh, I don't know if anyone noticed, but the microphones are gigantic. We're in the land of the giants for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a distraction, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, okay. Let's slowly start, and then um, and then I'll switch over in a minute to your paper, so people mm -hmm. can, when you talk about it, can follow along. For now, we have um, the lab website on top of the room if people would like to check it out. But before we start, let me introduce you to everyone, so people get to know you a little bit. So welcome everyone to Science Society and a special welcome to our guest speaker here. And I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Um, Dr. Wiyaya Kolakalama. Okay. <laughs> Was that correct? Pretty no. close, pretty close. Uh, How would you say? I'm Vijay Kolachalama. Kolachalama. Okay. Yes, that's right. Okay. Vijay, good, good, yes. good. you can Vijay. call me Vijay. Yeah. Okay, Vijay, perfect. Okay, um, him, he's um, associate professor at Boston University, and um, he did his uh, bachelor uh, of technology, and um, at the Indian Institute of Technology in Aerospace, Aeronautical, and Astronautical Space Engineering which is really cool <laughs> and um, he did his PhD at the University of Southampton and mechanical engineering and um, later on he um, he did his uh, postdoc one of his post at the MIT at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology then he um, <clears throat> was a principal member of technical staff at Draper and, a co and he's still a co-founder also of deeppath.ai, um, which um, is really interesting. Uh, please check it out. And um, he, as I said, he is now the associate professor in the Department of Medicine at Boston University School of Medicine and a um, founding member of the Faculty of Computing and Data Science. Um, and um, he won several honors and awards, uh, including the Evans Junior Faculty Merit Award um, and the Toffler Scholar in Neuroscience Award. And um, um, yeah, so thank you so much for being here. And um, before we usually start, Victoria asks a, a few interview questions, if that's okay with you. And sure. In the time. Yeah, perfect. Thank you for the nice introduction, Katharina. Okay, Victoria, the stage is yours. All right, thank you so much. And that was fascinating to hear the introduction. Um, 
of your accomplishments, Vijay. So thank this you. question, yeah, thank you so much. We're so happy to have you here. My questions are to uh, not only lead us into your discussion, also to share a little bit about the person behind the research. It helps us to follow along, maybe with uh, um, a new kind of interest. And so the question is, if you can reflect on your life and maybe find a place that you noticed that you had a particular interest in science or that science was something you felt a strong connection toward. And this could be in your childhood or really any time in your life. And any from a person or an event or class or whatever strikes you as, you know, as what the answer might be for you. Oh, that's a, it's a very good question. <laughs> I don't think there is a simple answer to this because, uh, I've been very fortunate to uh, get motivated at many stages of my life, during many stages of my life. Uh, I think the primary source was my family, uh, my parents, and actually my grandmother, uh, because I grew up uh, in her house for many, many years. So uh, she was the one who taught me the value of education and uh, for many years. And I think uh, with her blessing, I was able to do well in school <laughs> and I think it just carried forward and uh, every time I just you know move to the next grade or move forward in my career I was just able to you know, meet some really nice people some great mentors uh, great teachers um, and uh, just you know took what I could during the whole process so it's very hard for me to point it you know, one single individual or one single event, but I clearly have to give the credit to my grandmother. That's so amazing. It's 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 really it's important to hear what what was instrumental in in your motivation and in and you mentioned the word support that she was there supporting you and that you had her blessing, and That's it's. When we think about our own interactions with people in life at any stage, then it's I think it's encouragement to to um, consider the effect that we have on each other as far as support and encouragement goes. You know the importance of that. I don't think stops when you leave childhood. So thanks to your grandmother, <laughs> and yes. and then also perhaps is there is there something that you felt was maybe along the way to, to the work that you're doing now, were there any noteworthy surprises or challenges that you would like to share with us? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I grew up in India and uh, I, like many other uh, kids, uh, you know, most of them, you know, were inspired to, you know, take up on uh, STEM mainly, science and engineering mainly. And, uh, and I just followed the similar path during my school. I wanted to, you know, do something in science and technology and engineering. Um, but I never got exposed to medicine uh, for a long time. In fact, even during my undergraduate, I was just doing my engineering. And I, I never knew there was a subject that was biomedical science. So only during my later years of my undergraduate i came to know that there is a there is a whole discipline called biomedical research so at that point i started to began appreciating what biomedical science was and i think one of my mentors was pointing at you know 
you know, doing rocket science was child's play compared to working on how uh, things work within the body. So that was kind of an interesting quote by uh, a faculty member in my college who was actually an engineer and was working on space science. But at that point onwards, I thought of looking at what biomedical research was. And I think that was a time when I began to appreciate uh, biology and medicine and slowly began to think about how to move in that direction because it was, you know, I came from a completely different background, science, engineering. Like Katrina said, I my undergraduate degree was in aerospace. So I was never exposed to biology until that point. Uh, only just basic in school, but that was not so much. But uh, the, my, the biomedical research was uh, something that, you know, fascinates me even today. So there's so many common threads there that it's, I'm, I hear when I ask um, our guest researchers this question, something, a common thread is that people had, had questions and they wanted to pursue their schooling and their work to find solutions and answers. And, and it also speaks to how important it is to acknowledge what, what you just shared, that you didn't, you didn't know, you weren't aware that there was this discipline. However, in the big picture, you know, if we um, scope back, then of course everything is related. And it doesn't matter if it's recognized in, in a school setting by a, you know, a class or career title with that name, it already exists and so it's so important that, that you were able to, to locate that so you could then focus your, your work on, on that which interests you at the moment and, and bring all of your, of your experience there. So thank you so much yeah. for sharing yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, I, I still um, thank you for, for the note. Uh, I am still fascinated and I always, uh, when I look back at what I did, <laughs> sometimes it's always hard to connect the dots, uh, but I somehow do it. Yeah, that's why I, I believe that, you know, from, from one perspective, something might look like chaos, but from another perspective, you know, as you say, you connect the dots and everything becomes, mm, makes sense in, in the mind of the person who's walking that path. Yeah, yeah, it's, thank you. Mm, thank you. I hope I can continue to do biomedical science research <laughs> yeah, for some we, more time. <laughs> you will, and we have no idea where you'll go next because that's up to you, and and um, and there's no reason to um, you know put put um, boundaries on anyone's work, and and so at this point, um, I would turn over the I will turn over the mic to you, and you mm -hmm. may begin your talk, and and then we the moderators here can. Um, help people if, if you would like to have a Q&A following your talk or you'd like to have the Q&A drive your talk along. Either way, we're here to assist and sometimes friends in the audience will place questions in the room chat and if they do, we can tell you what those are as well so you don't need to worry about that. Um, you can just relax and enjoy delivering your presentation. So thank you. Sure, thank you. Thank you for setting this up again. So. I think uh, just to make sure I understand, so the links are available for for people to take a look at the the paper, right? Yes. Oh, sorry, you, Katarina, go ahead. Yes. Oh no, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. The link is on top of the room. It's okay. Um, yep. 
Okay, I, I guess my plan is to just, uh, you know, use the, the manuscript as a template to go over my talk. Um, I think it's somewhat easier for me to take a look at the manuscript and then talk about what we did because, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like slides may not carry all the information, but clearly in the manuscript, we tried our best to describe all the aspects. But of course, I can't cover everything in the hour, but I'll try my best. So I guess the just to give some background about where we are and you know what how this ended up becoming a paper uh, we've been kind of working in the in the field of Alzheimer's for a few years now I think uh, the, the main credit actually goes to my students who I think have you know worked extremely hard for um, I would say two years to get this paper out and I think when 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 you're thinking about AI and uh, Alzheimer's I think one thing that I always see is how can we actually work on such kind of a multidisciplinary question um, sitting in a specific research lab right and fortunately in my case i have mainly <clears throat> two kinds of students who who are part of my lab uh, one of them is a, a computer science student who is getting a phd in the department of cs um, um, and in you know, for, for that person to get a PhD in computer science, they have to make advances in computer science because they have to advance the algorithmic knowledge. They have to think about computational aspects. They have to just do some excellent work in CS. And on the other hand, I have, fortunately again, um, MD students who are the future doctors who want to be doctors and they are fascinated about AI and they want to uh, you know, work on some interesting questions that are clinically relevant, but at the same time, they also want to explore AI, right? So, and when I put these two types of students in the same room, uh, fortunately, sometimes magic happens. And uh, in this case, uh, you know, both of them, uh, actually not just two, but a group of people, a group of trainees uh, work together to work on something interesting because, you know, if you look at the field of AI, I think, especially AI in medicine, there are many, many uh, things that are happening, many cool things that are happening, you know, starting from diagnosing cancer all the way to diagnosing infectious disease. So uh, our interest was mainly focused on dementia uh, because we think it's, a, it's an interesting question. And uh, uh, although uh, there was a recent um, approval of a drug called aducanumab by a company called Biogen, uh, there is still not an effective treatment that is uh, that, that can tackle Alzheimer's disease so there are millions of people around the world who I think have Alzheimer's disease and dementia I think dementia is a very broad category I think Alzheimer's disease is the common cause of dementia about 60 to 70 percent of people uh, who have dementia also have Alzheimer's disease uh, and there are a few other ways of getting dementia I think Parkinson's is one and Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia. There are many other variants, but Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. And we are talking about millions of people getting affected. And the disease is kind of, you know, a, a very strange condition because, you know, for example, if somebody has pain or if somebody get a, gets a fracture or something, you know, they have pain and they, they sort of seek help. But when it comes to these kinds of neurodegenerative conditions, the care management is very, very complicated. 
and you know staying with a person whether it's a doctor or whether it's a family uh, caregiver uh, managing the person who has dementia is pretty challenging and uh, especially if the dementia is severe it's even more challenging um, but I think when you look at how to manage this condition hopefully there are going to be more therapies in the future but at this point the best option is to identify the condition early on so that you can provide better care management and uh, and for us to identify dementia early on we need we need tools we need expertise we need we need all kinds of different examinations done on these people uh, and we have to somehow figure out a way to process all that information to assess the patient's condition but unfortunately there are two things that are happening uh, that is kind of troubling uh, one is that more more and more people are living longer which is great but on the other hand these kinds of aging related disorders are on the rise so there are more people who are getting diagnosed with dementia more people are probably suffering because of dementia and on the other hand um, there is a shortage there is a extreme shortage of medical expertise that can essentially evaluate the patient uh, in, in various clinical settings around the world, right? So there are two things that are happening. And I think uh, the projection is that the situation is going to only get worse because on one side, many people are going to be affected. On the other hand, there are going to be fewer and fewer doctors who can who have the potential to actually do something on, on these patients. So those two factors have motivated us to think about other ways to uh, figure out how to diagnose this person and how to di accurately diagnose the cognitive status of people who may have dementia and uh, and because we were working on ai approaches we thought we're going to start building some ai algorithms that hopefully can take in information uh, and potentially can diagnose accurately the cognitive status of these individuals so that was kind of really the motivation to to work on this this project i mean this is not the very first paper we published we have done a few a bit of work in the past this is kind of really uh, a follow-up to a few other papers that were published in the past and this paper is special because uh, we we have built upon what we received as feedback from our previous work and and the goal was to sort of basically come up with a tool that can accurately diagnose a person along the dementia spectrum. So, and typical clinical workup is that if you, if suppose if somebody is living in Boston or you know New York City or one of those big cities, uh, they have access to a lot of resources, but technically those resources are not available in all locations, right? So, um, based on my discussions with some clinicians, some neurologists who see these patients on a daily basis they have told me that you know you have to imagine a situation in a in a typical family you know a person let's say a 65 year old female or a male uh, who is living with their family happily and suddenly um, the person starts behaving weird in other words you know they they turn on the stove they forget to turn it off you know they are going out they sort of kind of forget where they're going and slowly and steadily the family basically starts observing what's actually happening 
and and over a period of one or two months you know what maybe we should you know seek a opinion and after those two months they basically try to maybe set up an appointment with a with a family provider like a primary care physician or someone and they take the person to the primary care physician and the primary care physician has some skill in terms of looking at the condition and then if they have some kind of suspicion then they will say you know what you know i i do what i could but you know maybe you should go and you know seek a, a consult or a specialist uh, seek a specialist to look at look at this person so typically in the united states if you want to get a neurologist appointment i'm not talking about specialized neurologists i'm talking about general neurologist uh, the wait time is a few weeks right it doesn't happen the next day so so we're talking about let's say january 1st something begins to happen with that person by the end of february they decide to take the person to a primary care physician that you get an appointment somewhere in march and and that time the primary care physician says okay you know what go and get a neurologist appointment which might take another couple of months so we're already talking may uh, for the neurologist for the general neurologist to actually see the patient and the general neurologist obviously has more skill than the primary care physician because they are they have the expertise on on the brain and they uh, do some examination they collect all the family history the patient history they are capable of administering some cognitive tests and uh, and based on whatever assessment they can do they may have some suspicion on that this person may have you know some form of dementia or some kind of a cognitive impairment and typically at that time uh, they also want to either you know send the patient for an mri image or uh, mri scan or uh, or maybe even recommend a special consult to someone called as a behavioral neurologist who is the expert in terms of actually diagnosing somebody to have alzheimer's or other forms of dementia right and again that appointment takes a few weeks and hoping that in the best case scenario the neurologist provides their information and their opinion and at the same time you're getting an mri and the collection of all this information will probably go to that behavioral neurologist who in a few weeks from that point can maybe see the patient again and then finally make an assessment right so that's the typical workflow uh i would i wouldn't say this is the best case scenario but at the same time this is probably a practical scenario that happens so from the time when things become deteriorated until the point you get a diagnosis a proper diagnosis we are talking about 6 months or more mm-hmm. right so and the the belief in the community is that um, you know sometimes these things are very progressive disorders and you know by the time the person gets diagnosed with dementia it's probably already too late you know you can't do much on those patients except for you know hoping to manage them uh, in the best way possible right so so there are these uh, inefficiencies and i'm assuming some of these inefficiencies exist mm-hmm. even outside the us um, you know in places where what if you don't have a neurologist at the right time in the right place what if you don't have a mm-hmm. behavioral neurologist at the right time in the right place so what are we going to do in those scenarios right so these are all practical challenges you know mm-hmm. when i'm describing and when i'm thinking about it it feels that you know we could do something about it and and that kind of has been our goal mm-hmm. which is you know how can we 
as computer scientists how can we really help uh, you know not just do research but how can we really help solve this problem right and it's not an easy problem to solve and it's not a trivial thing to solve because there are so many practical aspects uh, uh, you know surrounding real world scenarios you know if you want to simulate a computer to you know create a real world scenario it's very hard right because there are so many nuances here right so but again we 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 made some progress we began sort of appreciating all these different stages that exist and you know we are slowly being slowly begun to sort of not only first of all uh, innovate on the machine learning and the ai side of things but also think about these practical scenarios on how to actually solve the problem and it's a long process we are not even close but i think we made some really important strides um, and this paper uh, is one important stride where we have shown that we can reasonably come up with a reasonably good uh, ai based model that can perform dementia assessment using data that is routinely collected in a clinical neurology setting so which means the ai framework here uh, if you slowly go scroll down to maybe figure one in this paper you may see the the workflow that we have described which is you know we <coughs> collected uh, data from eight different uh, cohorts and these cohorts are studies that are done on people with dementia and alzheimer's disease around the world and i think these are short forms mentioned in the in the in the figure here so there is a cohort from australia there is a cohort uh, from you know uh, massachusetts uh, there is a there is a national cohort and there are several clinical cohorts that are that have, that have dedicated themselves to look at dementia and related disorders right so we were fortunate to get access to data from all these different places and we initiated collaborations with uh, many different clinicians around the country actually outside the us as well so we have uh, we have we have been very careful and we have also been very selective in terms of picking our collaborators so for this project we began working with uh, physicians in boston uh, neurologists in boston boston medical center we also then connected with uh, neurologists at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and it's an interesting place because Nebraska is kind of really in the Midwest and uh, it's a very busy center and it sees a lot of uh, patients from the rural areas right so that's an interesting population and uh, the physicians have that experience although the data didn't come from the rural population but the physicians were part of the study and we also uh, collaborated with folks from stanford uh, and also from beijing um, and all these physicians actually have helped us uh, to evaluate the model i'll come to that in a second but i think the figure here is kind of really showing that we've been able to collect data from all these different cohorts and uh, and when i say data i'm talking about uh, clinical history uh, demographics uh, mri imaging you know their functional assessment which means every patient undergoes some cognitive testing all those things were collected on all these people and then our goal was to somehow create or unify information coming from imaging data non-imaging data and somehow figure out a way to first of all understand if this patient has you know healthy cognition 
uh, or mild cognitive impairment which is another stage and if not you know dementia right so that's typically the spectrum right when people talk about dementia spectrum they usually talk about people who are healthy or people who have some form of mild cognitive impairment or you know somebody who has dementia but if somebody has dementia then they also want to know whether that dementia is because of Alzheimer's disease or due to something else so that's kind of really the machine learning framework which I think was innovative by itself where we were able to combine information from uh, all these different modalities of data uh, and then and the, the machine learning model was able to make a two-stage prediction you know the first stage was okay given this data uh, at where do the person fall along the dementia spectrum is it you know normal cognition or mild cognitive impairment or dementia and if the model predicts the person to have dementia then it goes further and says if the person has Alzheimer's disease or some other forms of dementia so that was the model and what and the reason we collected all these different cohorts was we trained the model on a specific cohort and then we use the rest of the cohorts to actually test the model because we don't want the model to sort of really overfit uh, because sometimes these models do a great job if you show them the data and it, it trains very well but when it comes to testing the model on a different setting uh, it may or may not do well so we wanted to make sure our model actually is doing well on those cases which the model has not seen during the training process right so that's why we we kind of split the eight cohorts so that one cohort was used for training and the rest were used for testing. So that what we call as the an important step of, of uh, computational validation of our model. But then, then the neurologist and the cl other clinicians actually helped us to validate the model further, right? So if you see on the right of this figure, you will see that uh, we we were able to sort of give. Um, you know, we, we recruited about 17, one seven neurologists from all these different places. And then we gave them, each one of them independently, 100 cases. And these 100 cases had, you know, some form of dementia, some of them were healthy, some of them had mild cognitive impairment. And we gave them all the information about those patients, which means all the clinical history, the demographics, the MRI scans, the functional assessments, the same content that the model uh, was trained on the same content for each person of on those hundred cases was given to uh, these uh, neurologists independently and each one of them spent time to review those cases and then provided their assessment on those hundred people and then what we did was we, we then compared our model on the same hundred cases using the same data and then we sort of saw that the model was performing as well as those neurologists the average neurologist I mean and and we also did a couple more things uh, we we then uh, uh, there is again the, you know when when we talk about neurologist neurologist basically has the skill to look at the different kinds of information like the patient history demographics and all that and even sometimes imaging to assess the patient but there is another class of clinicians the neuroradiologists who have the specialized expertise to look at only the brain images so so we recruited about seven of them uh, on an independent study which is part of the paper by the way and what they did was they basically reviewed 50 cases of people who were already diagnosed to have dementia so the neuro the neuroradiologist 
would know, already knew that all those 50 cases had dementia, but then they were asked to look at signs of Alzheimer's disease in those brains. Uh, and once they did that on those 50 cases independently, then we compared how our model also was able to identify those same regions in those 50 people. And then we you know, sort of wanted to make sure that the model was able to pick the right signatures in the brain that was indicating uh, Alzheimer's disease dementia or dementia due to other etiologies, right? So that's the other part we did. And then finally, on some cases, we also had post-mortem data. You know, some of these patients died so their brains were autopsied and examined uh, in detail molecularly and we were able and not we but the, the pathologists who were trained to examine these brains graded each of those regions in the brain there are many regions you know typically you know thousands of regions but i think they carefully uh, selected about 100 different regions in the brain and they and looked at the pathology in those re different regions in the brain and then they graded the pathology for different kinds of abnormal protein deposition and then we took all those um, cases in all those hundred regions and all the grades and then we then also tested if the model was able to also predict uh, pathology in those sub-regions within the brain uh, and that was again a very important thing to do because we we had a um, neuropathologic um, validation of our model so so that was kind of really the complete uh, project that is why it took us a couple of years and um, I think it was an interesting process because you know we just didn't want to end up doing a, you know a fancy AI model and then write a paper we also were motivated to make sure the model is built trained and tested on different cohorts followed by testing the model even further on based on clinical opinion, the neurologist opinion and the neuroradiologist opinion. And then finally, uh, we also confirmed the findings on a few cases using gold standard data, which is coming from neuropathology. So that's kind of really the summary of the work. And uh, most of the results that we presented, uh, if you want to follow the order, I think figure two was mainly focused on making sure that because we are collecting data from all these different sites, right? Because, you know, some some sites may, may use Philips scanner, some sites may use Siemens scanner, some sites may use GE scanner to, you know, do the MRIs. We wanted to make sure there were no instrument-related uh, uh, parameters that were influencing our model. So we had to extensively normalize and process all the data just to make sure everything fits in the same framework. So figure two was an important thing to present first because we wanted to make sure that the site and scanner specific observations were not affecting the model performance. Uh, followed by that, I think figure three was essentially showing how the model was performing in all these different tasks. Um, because like I said, the, the model was doing a two tier task, right? The first tier was, it was trying to assess if the patient had dementia, or if the patient had mild cognitive impairment or normal cognition. So uh, that was the first step. And then once the model identified it to have dementia, 
then we went further to look at if the dementia was due to Alzheimer's disease or due to some other etiologies, right? So figure three was essentially showing the performance of the model on the test data, which the model has not seen before. And we also used some uh, data advances in uh, machine learning called as interpretable uh, frameworks, which allowed us to identify which factors that that we provided to the model were actually in, were turned out to be important in terms of making the assessment and and what you see in the figures there is a list of those uh, features if you will that we uh, we identified uh, sorry the model identified uh, in terms of making those assessments uh, that's kind of really figure three uh, and, in, and one thing i just want to point out is that interestingly enough the MRI was not on the top of the list when it comes down to assessing uh, dementia. Uh, MRI was actually number three in the list. And the first one was something called as a mini mental state examination, which is a, a very common cognitive test given to many, many people uh, when they appear in front of a neurology clinic. So that was the interesting finding. But, but on the other hand, when the model was trying to differentiate between uh, those cases who have Alzheimer's disease and the ones that do not have Alzheimer's but do have dementia, MRI turned out to be the top factor that actually made the model do that prediction. So that was kind of really the inference in uh, figure three. And, uh, and as you go down in figure four, you will see that we were able to sort of really dig deeper into the MRI scans and identify those specific regions that were uh, that were highlighted that that the model thought to be important in terms of differentiating between Alzheimer's disease dementia and other forms of dementia and uh, this was an important uh, result because this sort of really confirms to the existing literature where something called as a hippocampus which is one of the regions in the brain that is known to be memory uh, known to be related to you know memory so, and interestingly, the model was able to identify that as an important region in terms of making an assessment on those patients who have Alzheimer's disease. And in not just hippocampus, I think we were able to sort of really rank order the importance of each specific region in the brain and its effect on making that prediction, which is supposed to be Alzheimer's. That's uh, figure four. Um, and figure five was, I think, probably again a very important uh, result that we had to show where we uh, sort of again looked at those postmortem cases and and in each region uh, the expert pathologist was able to review different abnormal protein depositions called as amyloid and tau and all these so what they do is they look at each region under the microscope and they grade it between zero to three you know zero being no pathology and three being severe pathology and in each region they do it and what we also did was we then predicted our model we use the model to predict um, uh, in those regions the the risk of um, ad and uh, interestingly the risk was sort of proportional to the grade of pathology that the uh, pathologist identified in those people and statistically we showed that the model was able to consistently make that right prediction and this is again what we call as neuropathology, neuropathological validation of our model. Right? And then finally, in figure six, uh, we kind of summarize the 
head-to-head performance of the um, the expert uh, neurologists who reviewed those 100 cases and how the model actually performed on those same cases. And interestingly, our model was as good as the average pathologist, average uh, neurologist mm-hmm. in terms of making the assessment. Um, and we also reported something interesting because, you know, shockingly, uh, not surprisingly, not so surprisingly, uh, when we gave these 100 cases to these 17 neurologists, there was not a consensus in terms of the diagnosis and all these 17 uh, among these 17 neurologists on every case so it was interesting to see that because you know you would think that every neurologist probably trained in the same way would make a same assessment but it turns out not so uh, and on an average it, it, it we, we found out that uh, the consensus on a scale of 0 to 1 was about 0.6 between all the neurologists so that was an interesting finding we thought we should report. And uh, and yeah, I mean, finally, that kind of really summarized the uh, the neuro neurologist level validation of our model. And it's kind of really, uh, what I did was I just basically tried to summarize the figures. But of course, there's a long list of methods that we, we have presented there. I'm happy to talk about that in more detail if anyone's interested. But in summary, again, yeah, I think the reason we we worked on this project was we really want to build a tool. And we realized that if we have to build a tool, especially a clinical tool, that one day could hopefully be installed in a clinic, we want to not only just build AI models, but we want to make sure that these AI models are validated in the right way. And I think here what we did was we did three important things after building the model. One was we made sure that the model was validated on data that the model has not seen during training from coming from many different cohorts. And then we took a you know, consensus opinion on neurologists, uh, consensus opinion coming from neurologists and neuroradiologists separately. And then we compared our model with their assessments. And then finally, we made sure that the model identified regions of pathology also confirmed with neuropathologic evidence. And and I think that was the reason why we were fortunate that this paper got accepted in a very good journal. And the feedback that we received from the journal was also very encouraging because they appreciated the the extent to which uh, we, we tried to you know put all these pieces together to, to tell a compelling story uh, with the hope of you know one day to create a clinical tool. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of really the summary of the paper. Uh, I know we are what about 40 minutes into the meeting, so I can take a pause here and see if anybody has questions or any comments. Yes, thank you so much for uh, presenting your work. Um, in such a wonderful way that we could understand where data is coming from and how you're analyzing it. And um, yeah, that's um, it's really interesting work and uh, congratulations again. And please flash your microphones if you have a question. Um, yeah, go, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, hi, th- thank you, Katrina, and thank you, Dr. Vijay, for such a great explanation. Um, I just want to ask because I also kind of stumbled upon um, 
mental health as uh, as as my thesis topic here in Germany, and I got mm. to work on micro expressions dealing with stress and everything. And uh, I was like trying to find the correlation how having excessive stress accelerates not only aging but also deteriorates the brain health. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of made some kind of you know tagging tools and everything since you mentioned that uh, you are looking for various ways to validate it. Uh, yes. The thing is, like um, AI can also be used to kind of predict beforehand that you know until what age you might get uh, dementia, and mm-hmm. also what kind of lifestyle you need to have. Like you know, you really need to include like pranayama or breath work, or doing guided meditation, having that you know thirty to forty minutes of quietness throughout the day, and having that exercise and diet. Because I do see that uh, such i have also come across studies that kind of uh, helps in um, if you are able to manage your stress level somehow even though you're genetically more uh, likely more likely to get uh, alzheimer's dementia or even vascular dementia because it's just not of the brain it's even of other organs mm-hmm. uh, so it's pretty fascinating so my question to you is do you validate via images or text data and like you know how do you see this uh, beautiful uh, mix of uh, you know uh, uh, the uh, things coming from image processing ai and how like you know biomedical is combining and where is the future going uh, it's a great question thank you for asking um i guess uh, First of all, I think the the disclaimer is that I think we are just at the very very early stages of really exploring the value of AI. I think we are there are so many things that can be done, um, and when it comes to integrating data from images and data coming from let's say text or electronic health records, I think we are already doing some of that. Like at, at least in this paper, uh, like I noted before, for us to be able to get the best information about the patient we have built this framework to integrate both data that is imaging like an mri scan as well as data that is coming in from a neuropsychological testing and patient history and demographics etc right so we wanted to mimic a neurology setting you know if what we wanted to do was we wanted to build a model that basically sees the same kind of information that a typical neurologist would see in a clinic, right? So which means it's all that kind of examination data, the demographics, patient history, and also imaging, right? So so we are already kind of doing some of it, but of course, you know, there are so many other imaging modalities and so many things you can do with imaging, uh, as well as text data. Uh, and I think, yeah, the future, I think, is, is to be able to sort of integrate all this information in a meaningful way and an efficient way to be able to learn from the patterns. And to your other point about lifestyle, I fully agree with you because lifestyles can make a lot of difference. In fact, you know, I think if, if you talk to a neurologist, uh, I have talked to a few and most of them do agree that lifestyle modifications can hopefully, you know, make a difference in, in the person's life. So I fully agree, healthy, healthy work habits, healthy habits in general, I think can help help the patient uh, recover or if not recover at least even prolong the disease to a later stage. Thank you for answering and I believe that yeah um, in, in future we will also need good 
multimodal systems as as they these systems are known to efficiently you know uh, get because as you mentioned that if it's taking so long to get an appointment from your neurologist and uh, as you also mentioned in, uh, that people are living longer and uh, so it becomes like very imperative that if a lot of things can be done you know like at uh, simple centers or clinics before like the doctor have like uh, you know uh, they put in more time and resource to diagnose detect if ai can at least eliminate that waiting period i believe that uh, we can uh, you know uh, if 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 a good science collaboration happens uh, a lot of people can be like given an early warning and things like that so thank you for answering my questions yeah thank you and i also quickly noticed some of the comments on the chat um again i probably won't be able to answer all but at least uh, just wanted to provide a quick summary to all the people who are listening and thank you for those comments um, i guess you know i don't want to debate as to whether ai is going to replace jobs or you know take away something i think um, it's it's a, it's it's not the question for me to answer but uh, generally speaking, I think there is a role for AI to play. And going back to my very first comment, I think if you're looking at a physician in Boston or New York City or one of those big cities, they're in good shape. They are the experts. They don't need to be, get replaced and they'll probably never be replaced. But, you know, we're not talking about replacing jobs, but we're also talking about providing solution at a different clinical setting, at a setting where there is no resource. Right. So, so there is a difference between the two. So in my opinion, I think the things that we have done in this paper kind of really talks about an important part, which is for us to be able to take, for example, a tool that hopefully can help somebody who is outside a main medical center and needs help. How do we build that tool? Right. We, we can't just simply build it from thin air. And right. we have to, first of all, make sure that we build a model or a framework that is validated from based on the gold standard, right? So, so the process is, at least in my opinion, you want to take data, you want to collect all the information from the experts in, in you know, in places where there are resources, you build these frameworks. And once these frameworks are at least as good as these experts, which we have shown, then you have potential to take these things, you know, at different places, right? So I think the role of AI, in my opinion, uh, at least the, the way I want to, I want AI to work is to to build something, a technology that can be useful in places where there is a need, not to necessarily replace jobs. And I'll, I'll stop here. Uh, if, I might, if I may comment on that really fast. Um, I think Armish had the question and uh, yeah, let's, let's just go in PTR if that's okay with everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Katrina. Uh, thank you, Vijay, for the presentation. I could just open the uh, PPT PDF, and I have a couple of questions on the modeling approach. Mm -hmm. So the so the hybrid fusion model, which we built. So I mm -hmm. I understand that the first step is the CNN, which takes inputs as those MRI images, and you get a score for whosoever would have likely to be likely to have dementia based just on the MRI images. And then in the second second step, you build these previous models and you I saw you applied, you tried a lot of um, execution, a lot of uh, previous techniques there. 
where you take in taking in inputs uh, in let's say uh, tabular format for age uh, medical history so uh, image processing everything is done at this at first step now you're just taking the tabular data of medical history age gender and then you're running this t-based model and, and likely to get those scores is is that correct or something else or, or, yeah, so I think that's a fair summary. Sorry, I couldn't catch some of the words you said, uh, but that's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, what we were hoping to do, like I said, was we wanted to mimic uh, a neurology setting, right? So a neurologist, for example, is not going to see the MRI first, right? Because the neurologist is going to first see the patient. And when the patient comes in front of them, they basically examine the patient. They, they look at all the history of the patient and then they, based on their examination, sometimes they, they conduct some tests and, and most more often than not, they will get all the information they need in, when the patient is in front and maybe from the electronic health record. So the so information that the neurologist collects, it's not necessarily imaging first. But at the same time, they, they, they can make an assessment. Some, some of the neurologists may or may not have access to MRI. So which means they have to somehow figure out a way to make a diagnosis based on you know patient's history and basic assessments that they can do in the clinic. Right? So mm -hmm. the, the imaging comes at a later stage typically because most often, more often than not, imaging is basically used to rule in findings that are indicative of the disease or rule out some other things, right? So, so the way we constructed the model was we, we clearly knew, the, or at least we tried to appreciate the workflow so we, we trained the CNN on the MRI and we then fused the MRI-based uh, features that were trained on the CNN with the non-imaging data to then fuse the information together to make an assessment. Got it. But here, here's the confusing part. So I, I understand their uh, first, first level of modeling just tries to identify the probability of dementia. And then you have sub-models within those. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So what you're saying is that the whole CNN plus the tree structure actually ends up uh, a complete, this actually is the first step, which identifies the dementia. And then you have separate models, maybe different approaches uh, to do the same. Um, so, so we, so we have models where we have, uh, we do both the steps using non-imaging non data. We also have models that we showed that does that using imaging data. We also have presented models where fused information also does both the steps, right? So there are, it's not just one model that we created. So we want to make sure we run on all the different combinations that exist, where you have a non-imaging model and you have an imaging model and you have a fusion model, all three are making the same assessments. Got it, got it. Just one last supplementary question. Uh, so what sort of benchmark you have in this uh, in, in your field uh, because I saw the accuracy number just there are 73% uh, accuracy for one of the models so uh, is it like a good benchmark? Uh, where, where, where were you seeing 70% can I ask? Uh, in a PDF I just saw there is a number against uh, I'm not sure if it is against accu yeah. accuracy or yeah, so again, uh, we can go into the details of the numbers. So that's a very important question and a great question, right? So I guess it's hard to think about a standard only because what we are doing is research at this point, right? 
and I think hopefully standards are going to be established in the future. But that being said, uh, that's actually one of the reasons why we validated our model to see how it compares with the average neurologist who is actually seeing patients, right? So, so the way I would think of a standard is to see if the model is doing at least as good as the expert. And I think we achieved that goal uh, because we, we, like I said, we gave a few cases to these neurologists who were located at different places around the world. And each one of them independently reviewed all these cases and provided a standard diagnosis, right? And, and what we did was we compared our model uh, on those cases and then we showed the results where our model at least meets the basic standard of an average neurologist. I think which is, again, one step, not the only step to do, but I think that was encouraging. Thank you, Vijay. Um, yeah, Dr. Shah, did you have a question? Okay, um, maybe she's away from the phone. Um, Sandeep and Dr. Keisha, welcome. Uh, do you have a question or comment? <laughs> Isn't my voice like, can, can people hear me well? I can hear okay. you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Joyce, do, do you have a question, maybe? Oops, I'm so sorry. There was some problem at my end. Uh, I apologize. Am I audible now? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Right. Um, I'll be sounding extremely dumb because I do not know what happens medically in case of dementia. But yes, I'm pretty excited about the technology discussion. Uh, I want to say thank you, Vijaya, for sharing the knowledge about the research that is happening in AI space with regards to dementia. Mm -hmm. uh, very quickly, just wanted to understand uh, if it comes about you know, implementing AI solution for doctors to utilize this technology, how much time are you looking at uh, this will become uh, viable for commercial usage? It's <laughs> a great question, uh, Sandeep. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, I... I, I sometimes think about it uh, but I don't think uh, I can answer that at this moment because there's so much to do there's so much to do I mean I think like maybe somebody else also asked the question right so where is this tool going to be useful right uh, it's kind of really points to the other part which is you know AI replacing jobs or whatever uh, it's the, the fundamental point to keep in mind is that we are we have built this AI model based on data that we collected in rich medical centers and by comparing the model with experienced neurologists who are in these medical centers, right? So this was sort of really an important proof of principle for us to establish to make sure that people are convinced that a model like this can, can actually do the job right, right? So that's the only thing we have accomplished. But I think if for this model to actually become a tool that's going to be useful in clinic there are multiple things that have to happen first of all you know we have to actually we can't give a you know an AI algorithm to a doctor right we have to somehow build a software we have to somehow figure out how these things are going to work in a clinical workflow and there are so many clinical workflows around the world and more importantly the question is where do we put the software do we put the software in Boston or do we put the software in you know a primary care center in many different primary care centers right so I think the real value of this model or this software and one one day if there is a software that can be built on this is when this software can go upstream 
in the clinical care continuum. When I say upstream, I'm talking about primary care centers, general health practices, and those places, because those are the places where you don't have neurologists, you don't have abundance of expertise, right? So, but for us to go upstream, we have to make sure we, we do all the studies downstream, which means in a clinical center, which has the right expertise, right? So we are only at that stage at this point where we proved, we have a proof of principle that this can work, right? So what I'm hoping in the future is to sort of really think about those upstream tasks. And at that point, maybe I think that question that you asked, which I think is very important is to think about how can this be, you know, a tool that can be either commercialized or that can be useful in a clinical setting. Sorry, I don't know if I answered your question completely, but... No, absolutely, I get it. It's very difficult to predict the time right now, but a quick question. I'll keep it very brief. Mm -hmm. uh, you must have an idea by now that whether this technology, the AI technology that we're looking at, is it going to make the overall uh, treatment expenditure go on a higher side or will it bring it down? What is your view on that? Well, again, uh, so in a, in a simple if calculation, if I have to do, right, a neurologist's time is very precious, right? And first of all, we don't have many neurologists, right? So clearly, if you're really counting by the dollars, right, so a neurologist probably is going to cost more money than, you know, a primary care physician or a, or just, you know, an appointment in a neurology clinic is probably going to cost more than an appointment with a primary care physician, right? So... So if I have to just do that simple math, and if I have a tool that can sit in a primary clinic, but maybe costs much less than the average neurologist clinic, then maybe we are already beginning to think about saving costs. Thank you so much, and I want to appreciate entire group here for conducting such a beautiful discussion. Thank you so much, Vijaya. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I hope you, do you have uh, time for one more question? I know that sure. Mitch was asking. Perfect, yeah. thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi Vijay, this is uh, Mitch from Sweden. I, just a quick question. I uh, Really great work and I am so uh, grateful. Dementia is a very personal disease for many of us, especially for people that we love. I am just curious, um, are, the, are the many markers or tests like um, for the elderly, like for example, the time up and go test, you know, more for gait and fall detection, are these many tool sets or data that you collected seamless or available in the many standardized tests for the elderly, making it much easier to, um, you know, broaden its diagnostic tools since, you know, the, the government already sort of has these protocols or are there special, is your test more specialized, which means, it, you know, you've got to draw even more data points from the I other see. year. Yeah, I just see. wondering the practical aspect of the Yeah, that's a great, yeah. I, I think you're asking a very important question. I think I understand what you're asking, which is, you know, you know, we've done these models using some tests, that, uh, using data coming from some standard tests, right? So what you're asking is, you know, maybe those are not the same tests that are done everywhere, or maybe there are different tests that are recommended by some governments or some hospitals, right? So how do you account for that, right? So that's a great question. Um, I guess um, part of the attempt in this paper was to not just create a single framework or a single model, sorry, 
what we realized is that clearly if you have a tertiary medical center which has all the resources they do all kinds of tests because they have the money they have the resources they have the expertise uh, whereas you know if you go to a place maybe a remote clinical setting they probably don't even do an mri so 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 then how can one single model be useful for these two different settings right so we we are aware of that and which is the reason why at least we attempted to create a series of models uh, with different with flexible combinations of data to actually show that regardless of whatever combinations we have used we are still able to get a reasonable result uh, of course we have not exhausted of all the possible tests but at the same time we are also not trying to recommend a set of tests that have to be done right so it's a careful balance i i don't think there is a perfect answer but we do realize there is a there is a potential for uh, for you know that that discrepancy that can exist in different places right so i think these are the practical issues these are exactly the practical issues that we need to solve because we can't just just expect ai to just work on everything right so these are the practical challenges uh, and we have to figure out a way to somehow make this tool work in a di any different setting any setting any clinical setting right that's the biggest challenge right at this point it works in a few settings but probably not all but I think, uh, you know, we are on the right track. Um, uh, oh, oh, thank you. Sorry, did you want to follow up, Mitch? No, no, thank you. Just thank you so much. I know that I oversaw Dr. Keisha. She had the question earlier. Um, please go ahead if that's okay with you. Thank you, uh, Vijaya, thank you for being here. I'm a pathologist in the United States and um, I'm glad you incorporated the neuropathological um, diagnoses and correlation um, in the study. Um, but I wanna know about acceptability because what I'm noticing, I did a lot of um, consultation for AI for pathology diagnosis for, cons for prostate and breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And then once we go through it, a lot of it's promising is that there's still a lot of older pathologists and older doctors that don't want to, when you bring it to them, incorporate yeah. it into their practice at all. Mm -hmm. So so what do you think about trying to get it um, to something that's actually accepted by um, your colleague, by colleagues? It's a great question. And thank you for um, promoting AI in pathology. That's a, that's a tough one. Uh, I agree with you. In fact, all my mentors, uh, they still see slides under the microscope. They don't want to touch the computer. So you're absolutely right. I think uh, the, the 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 generation that the experienced pathologists they're all used to seeing things under the microscope. Uh, I think with respect to this paper, I want to make a comment that we only used neuropathology as a, as a way to validate our model. So we so the technically the digital pathology aspect is only for validation because as you know, you know if patient is alive, you can't get a a slide for that brain biopsy, right? Because nobody does biopsies on brains, especially if they have suspect, suspicion of dementia, right? So, so the, the role of pathology in our paper was only to validate, but I think your question was more broadly about AI and digital pathology, which is a completely different topic. And I think um, from what I understand, I think people are slowly beginning to appreciate the value I think there is a lot more we need to do to be able to uh, somehow, you know, digitize the whole world of pathology. Um, there are some clinical centers who have begun to, I think, uh, go fully digital. 
uh, but not all of them, maybe less than 5% if I have to guess. Um, but <laughs> it's a very hard task to convince those senior pathologists to you know, completely change the way they do things that have, they have been probably doing for you know decades and stop ask them to stop you know seeing uh, things under the microscope and certainly ask them to see things on the computer so that's a that's a very tough thing um, um, I don't know if it's going to be possible uh, but hopefully the future generation can adapt easily with the, with the new digital world Yeah, um, thank you so much for your time. I know we've gone a little bit over an hour. I hope that was still um, okay for you. And um, thank you so much for um, sharing your really um, interesting and also very helpful for the future work and, um, and for answering our questions. It was such an interesting discussion. And uh, we really appreciate your time. And um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us. And uh, I'm so happy to you know, have met some of you. And uh, thank you for the time that you have given me. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And, um, and thanks, everyone, for coming, asking questions, and for sharing, commenting. And um, yeah, if you like discussions like this, follow the club. We will have more um, guest speaker events um, in the future. So um, we will have um, tomorrow um, Dr. Kirev coming at 10 p.m. EST, talking about e-tattoos for continuous blood pressure monitoring, uh, which is really important. Um, it's a really um, important indicator for health um, and um, on Friday we'll have Dr. Uh, Kim Lafay. she will talk about thymocyte cell type discovery and leukemia and next week we have a lot more rooms Dr. Michael Levine will be coming that um, made these xenobots and he will update us on his current lab research that's still not published so um, yeah, thank you so much, um, Doctor, for being part of um, this group here and this club and for sharing here. And uh, we really appreciate it. And we hope you come back one day. And uh, we wish you all the best for your work and all the funding and intelligent people joining your lab to, to advance your research. Thank you. Thank you so much for, to all. And thank you, Katrina. Uh, take care. Okay, thank you. We'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone.